Welcome back to Take a Closer Look. I'm your host, Guinevere Lee. Last week's discussion focused on why Goldman would use a comedic fairy tale to write about how life isn't fair. Beasley said, It's a very easy way to subvert things. Fairy tales have the expectation that there will be one, our protagonist, at least one of whom is pure and completely morally good, two, conflict, three, a happy ending. Bad guys are punished, good guys live happily ever after. When you write something about a fairy tale or in a fairy tale-esque way, the subversion is more obvious. I think it's a clever way to set up a conversation by pitting your story and the morals of it against such a common and well-known formula. A book is supposed to entertain above all else. Some depressing moral books can be very entertaining, but a lot of them sacrifice being good entertainment in order to preach a moral message. At that point, just write a philosophical essay. Clarence underscore Seaborn said that it might have been a case of write what you know, where Goldman, having experienced the sheer insanity of life, sought to represent it without giving too much thought to the form. The artistic process is rather odd, and often what was aimed for isn't obvious. I think Clarence is trying to say that Goldman might not have sat down to write a story about how life isn't fair. Rather, it's more likely he was just writing a novel and his own experiences at how insane life is started to change the narrative. This makes a lot of sense, considering Goldman put so much of his real life in here. Obviously, his son Jason and family life is invented for the book, but his experiences and failures in publishing are real. Maybe as he put more of his life into the narrative, the message of life not being fair just naturally worked its way in. Thanks to everyone who sent me feedback. Now, let's take a closer look at Chapter 7, The Wedding. Let me summarize for you. Inigo and Fezzik open the door to the Zoo of Death. There's some discussion about why the door might be unlocked, but neither realize it's a trap, convincing themselves the albino would have locked the door if they hadn't knocked him out first. They get through the first floor, with enemies of speed, with no problem. All the animals are in their cages, and nothing seems amiss. Still, both are frightened as they continue past the second floor. The door closes and locks behind them. The lights go out. Their terror reaching its peak, they go down arm in arm. Hiding in the dark is the Arabian Garstini. No doubt a nod to the extinct Gigantophis Garstini, the largest ever recorded snake, growing to an average of 11 meters. Both are taken by surprise when the massive snake drops down and captures both of them in its coils. Fezzik finds his arms pinned down and is unable to rip free from the snake. As Inigo loses consciousness, he laments to Fezzik that he had such rhymes to share with him. Fezzik, an ardent lover of rhyming, can't stand the idea of Inigo dying before he can share, said rhymes. Invigorated, Fezzik manages to break free and kills the snake by slamming it repeatedly against the wall. They make it to the next floor and hear the approach of bats. Fezzik, who has a childhood fear of bats, is immobilized. Inigo, on the other hand, is reminded of the time he spent training with the only Scot who understood swords, Macpherson. Macpherson taught him how to fight with any disadvantage, including being blinded. Using only his ears, Inigo manages to locate the sound of the bats, skewering them one by one. They make it to the final door, but both are anxious of going through. Inigo is convinced that death is waiting waiting for them. 
and that Rugen and Humperdinck would surely put the deadliest enemy last. Unbeknown to both of them is that the green speckled recluse is hidden behind the doorknob. A single bite from the spider enough to kill a man. Fezzik, thinking Inigo has gone mad and panicked at the idea that he'll be left all alone in this place, runs forward and slams into the door, breaking it open. As Inigo follows him through, he sees a spider crawling away from the door and steps on it. The remainder of the Sicilian crowd finds the cage on the fifth floor, Wesley dead inside. But Inigo isn't deterred. Fezzik has money from working on the Brute Squad, and Inigo knows there's at least one Miracle Man left in Florence City. Finally, Miracle Max makes his proper introduction. Inigo and Fezzik bring Wesley's body to his hut. Max is still depressed from being fired, and at first doesn't want to help. Once he finds out Wesley is dead, and figuring he can't make matters worse, Max agrees to take a look. Max confers in secret with his wife Valerie, who pretends to be a witch. Just as every doctor has a nurse, apparently every miracle man needs a witch. Valerie wants him to take the job, but Max is hesitant. Even after finding out they have more than enough money, he goes back to Valerie trying to think of a way to avoid taking the job. Max realizes that Wesley is only sort of dead, and there's enough brain activity for him to answer a question. Max pumps Wesley's lungs full of air using bellows. He asks what Wesley has to live for and pushes against his chest so Wesley can answer true love. Max tries to weasel his way out, trying to convince them all that Wesley said to love. At which point, Valerie can no longer take it and bursts out of where she was hiding in the cellar. She accuses him of being a coward and afraid of Prince Humperdinck. When Inigo explains that saving Wesley will ruin Humperdinck's wedding, Max happily agrees to help them. They can make a pill for Wesley, which will give him one hour of life back. Goldman pops in to interrupt the text, explaining that he's cutting out about 24 pages, the first time he's cutting out an action sequence. At this point, Max asks Inigo and Fezzik to gather supplies for the pill. In Morgan Stern's original text, he cuts back and forth between their adventures and Buttercup and Humperdinck getting ready for the wedding, the hours counting down. Inigo must get frog dust, and Fezzik is tasked with collecting holocaust mud, for which he needs a holocaust cloak to collect. Goldman says he mostly cut this part out because it felt too close to the climax of The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy and her friends are sent off to kill the witch, though Goldman points out that Morgenstern wrote this first. He also mentions that his editor, Hiram, felt like the characters of Max and Valerie had a contemporary Jewish feel. Goldman mentions how a line he wrote about bifocals in Butch Cass and the Sundance Kid got a similar response, but points out that Benjamin Franklin wore bifocals, and things we feel are contemporary are often older than we thought. Finally, he mentions how Simon Morgenstern's parents were named Max and Valerie, and Morgenstern hardly sounds like an Irish Catholic name. Finally, we get back to the story. With two hours to go before the wedding, Max finishes up the pill, which Valerie coats in chocolate. It's a horrible, lumpy thing, but Max assures them it will work. Even though he can't help but feel like he forgot something. Back at the castle, Humperdinck summons Yellen, telling him of yet another plan he heard of Gilder assassins trying to kill Buttercup. Yellen has had enough and tries to quit since he's obviously not doing a good enough job. Humperdinck finally admits the truth though. There is no Gilder plan and then he's the one who's going to kill Buttercup, but he needs it to look like Gilder did it. And if Yellen helps, then after the war with Gilder, Humperdinck promises to give him the Gilder throne. Yellen happily agrees 
agrees to stay and help. We also learn that Yellen and the albino are cousins, but this isn't ever mentioned again and is only brought up to show how Yellen and his family are well trusted by Humperdinck. An hour to go before the wedding, Max and Valerie are enjoying some tea after their hectic day when Max realizes he did the recipe wrong. The pill he made would only be good for 40 minutes, not the full hour he promised, but there's nothing he can do about that now. 50 minutes before the wedding, Inigo and Fezzik climb the castle walls. They debate over when to give Wesley the pill and finally decide they should stop the wedding before it happens, so give Wesley the pill then. Instantly he wakes up, though he can only speak and move his head at first. With no time to explain everything that's happened, Inigo says they have less than an hour to break into the castle and save Buttercup, while Inigo goes and kills Count Rugen. Wesley is confused but goes along with it. They introduce themselves to each other properly for the first time. I'm the Dread Pirate Roberts, but you can call me Wesley, is quite possibly my favorite line from the book that didn't make it to the movie. At first, Wesley believes the situation is hopeless and wishes Inigo and Fezzik had left him dead so he didn't have to suffer through Buttercup marrying the man who murdered him. But when he learns that they have a wheelbarrow and a holocaust cloak, an idea comes to Wesley. Inside the castle, we learn that the wedding has been pushed up. 37 minutes early, Buttercup finds herself kneeling at the altar next to Humperdinck. But she's not worried. She knows no matter how early the wedding is moved, Wesley will find a way to rescue her. Two minutes later, she hears screams coming from outside and begins to smile. Outside, the 100 brutes and Yellen watch in shock as a large cloaked figure seemingly floats towards them. The figure yells, I am the Dread Pirate Roberts, and there will be no survivors, over and over again, and then suddenly bursts into flames, still screaming and moving forward. The men cannot see that this is Fezzik wearing the Holocaust cloak, being pushed forward on the wheelbarrow by Anigo. The men panic and begin to flee. Analysis and Opinion this chapter is a great bonding moment for Fezzik and Inigo. Throughout the fight in the Zoo of Death, they are terrified, but also push aside that fear in order to save each other. Fezzik kills the snake when Inigo can't, and Inigo kills the bats when Fezzik can't. Throughout it all, it's pretty clear that neither are great at planning things out and making decisions. Both move off of instinct and emotion rather than with a rational mind. They are effective, but it's clear that they are missing a member of their trio, and that reaching the the man in black is the only way they'll be able to succeed in storming the castle. This chapter is also a welcome relief to the nightmare of the previous chapter. It's not fun watching a character you've grown to admire be tortured and broken, and even though he's dead, this chapter gives the reader instant optimism. Of course Wesley's not really dead. Of course Miracle Max can bring him back. Of course they're going to storm the castle and succeed. Goldman has a bit of a wicked side, though. Everything is going well until it's revealed that the pill is only going to work for 40 minutes. But more of that in the next section. And last, I just want to talk about all of these insane things that Goldman keeps inventing for this novel. Pretty much any animal he mentions, most of the countries, little historical details are things that he invented to give this world a feeling that it could be real but it's probably just a fairy tale. This definitely feeds into the whole discussion of using fairy tale elements to write a book about how life isn't fair. So I think it's just one other element giving this novel a more lighthearted feel so that it's not such a bitter pill to swallow. Spoilers ahead as we look at foreshadowing and book versus the movie. 
I'm just going to stick these two sections together because the only thing that's really foreshadowed is something completely cut from the movie. This big change, something that is really going to change the ending of this novel, is the revelation that the pill is a time defect. In the movie, it really is presented as a miracle. Either it will bring Wesley back, or it won't. Here, there's no question it will work, but we are told it will only work for an hour, and then it's revealed that actually it will only work for 40 minutes. As readers, we have no idea what will happen after 40 minutes. Although this chapter has been fairly optimistic, we really have no real way of knowing if there will be a happy ending. Goldman just spent an entire chapter drilling into our heads that life isn't fair, the wrong people die, and Humperdinck lives. As readers, we can't help but be optimistic, but there's also a great amount of discomfort because it's almost impossible at this point to predict where the story is going. Unless you've seen the movie, of course. But even then, the ending will shock you. There are also some other small changes. In the novel, Inigo has a tendency to start nearly every sentence with I am Inigo Montoya and as a kind of a mantra. In the film, he only uses this for his famous line, which definitely gives it more impact. It's kind of boring to hear him repeat it over and over to himself in the novel. Also, Wesley regains a lot more mobility a lot faster in the book. By the wheelbarrow scene, he's able to walk, albeit very slowly, by himself. The movie again makes this final scene where Wesley stands on his own far stronger by changing this. The last thing worth mentioning is that we are still dealing with the time crunch. This chapter has a lot of stuff going on that is either cut, Anigo and Fezzik fighting their way through the zoo of death, or truncated, their visit to Max and Valerie taking up a lot less time. Thanks for joining us today. Next week in episode 8, we will take a closer book at the last proper chapter of the novel. If you have any thoughts and want to be part of the listener feedback at the beginning of the episode, you can catch me on Twitter at Guinevere Lee. That's at G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E. Or look for me on Reddit under the same name. Every week I start a Princess Bride discussion in the Reddit community books. That's r slash books. Join us there. You don't question why you're running through a forest of bamboo. You don't give yourself time to think. You run, you scream, you cry. You run and run and run, and you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. Lita and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan. Only available on Chanillo.com. That's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine, she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half fantasy, half historical fiction. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast? Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi-weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on Chanillo.com. Once again, that's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L-O.com. We were the first, and we will be the last. From Morgan James Fiction comes the exciting new historical fantasy Orope, The White Snake, by Guinevere Lee. The whispers of the gods have seen the vision, the gods destroying the world in a flood because the old ways have been corrupted and forgotten. Three are chosen, Tersh, Kareth, and Shadi, to go out and warn the world. The gods must be appeased. In Orope, the white snake, 
Tersh must leave her children and travel to Mataway, the kingdom in the mountains. She also must care for Kareth and keep him out of trouble. Kareth, told since birth that he is destined for greatness, has been expecting this moment. Certain that he is ready, he quickly discovers that his confidence and curiosity have a tendency to lead him into dangerous situations. Shadi finds himself traveling alone to find the people of the jungle, the Petsahalpa. The jungle seems like a paradise until he discovers the darker rituals practiced within. Samaki is a merchant who returns to Mahat to find his home destroyed, his father dead, and no one to buy his expensive cargo. With his first mate, Tuhark, the merchant struggles to move forward after his entire world has been upended. The stories of these four travelers intersect and entwine with each other as they move towards their destinations. Guided by visions, the whispers must use their wits to survive in these strange new lands that would rather use them as political pawns than listen to their warnings. Available in paperback, digital, and audio wherever books are sold. To learn more about Guinevere Lee and her writing, visit GuinevereLee.com. G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E dot com. And thank you for listening. Music provided by Bensound.com.